Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, May 24th. That means it is time for another episode of the Power Hour. I'll be joined by the team from Pittsburgh Power, and we'll be taking your calls here shortly. So line them up, 855-950-3835. I promise if you dial right now, you will get through. We'll get to those calls here in just a little bit. I have just a couple things I want to talk about. Uh, not a lot. We do have uh, the pit coming up after the show today, so stay tuned for that. We are adding a lot of new products to the store, so you've got to go check it out, mostly food. We're really looking at adding a lot of food Um Food that's shelf-stable, good in the truck, doesn't need refrigeration, super high quality, all of those things, grain-free that we always look for. And Lisa spent a lot of time looking for products, and I am blown away by how many new food companies we're finding with super high-quality products. It's really exciting to see some amazing stuff. So one of them... I was very sad uh, several months back when we lost one of our suppliers' vital choice for seafood. I know the owner, awesome quality, great company. We had a great relationship with them. Uh, unfortunately, they got bought out by 1-800-Flowers, of all things. And we just have not been able to come to a uh, retailer agreement with 1-800-Flowers. So we had to go look for a new food vendor, uh, seafood vendor. Lisa found one, and it's one of those things where you hate to make changes like this. You know, we had a great relationship, was working well, but sometimes you're forced to. I like when the new way is even better, and that's what happened here. Um, Had I found this company, Lisa found the seafood company, had I found them, I would have been very tempted to change, but we wouldn't have. We would have stayed loyal to our vendor, but since we had to change, this is a very positive change. The seafood, absolute same quality, no loss in quality at all, more variety, and they have some flavored uh, seafood. Normally, I'm not thrilled about that. Normally, I don't buy things that are pre-seasoned, pre-marinated, stuff like that. It usually tastes fake to me this is an exception so the other day i tried they have um, lemon and caper white anchovies they were incredible and the other thing i'm working on is i want to do at least one recipe with every product they have some spice blends too we've been looking for spice blends theirs are incredible so Lots of uh, lots of new products. There's also some new nut butters in the store as well. So check it out. The easiest way to find all of the new products, and we're adding them pretty quickly, so it's going to be hard to keep up. The easiest way is go to letstruck.com and then look under shop and then look to the right. You'll see a whole list of just all the new products we brought into the store recently. So check those out. You can eat really well out of our store now and none of this stuff needs refrigeration. 
We've got some new uh, beef sticks, well, bison sticks and uh, venison sticks in the store. Those are new. The granolas we rolled out a couple weeks ago are selling like crazy, and I can see why they're really, really good. If you're making yogurt, you got to try the any of these granola flavors with the yogurt. It's really incredible. I eat, uh, I eat a lot of yogurt yesterday. Um, so a lot going on in the store. Go check that out, letstruck.com. All right, phones are starting to light up. Um, we're going to get to the calls before we do. Let's hear from the team from Pittsburgh Power. Uh, so who do we have on this line? Okay. Hello. Oh, there Gary? we go. Pete, and we have Leroy there too? Yes, sir. Got it. All right. Are you guys on the board with your headsets? We are. Okay, good. All right. And I'm assuming then the other line is Bruce. I, I assume so, yes. Okay. I didn't speak with him this morning. Got I assume it. he's there. Yeah, we've got him coming in on a phone line. So I'm going to bring Bruce in so we can all just uh, jump in and get started today. Bruce, is that you? That's me. It is. All right. Good morning. Well, uh, Bruce, I'll let you just jump in and go first. What do you have this week? I almost missed the show. I was talking with Jim Gardner up in Bozeman, Montana. We got to talking. He sat for 40 hours at a place to unload 140 bushels of apples. (sighs) And, you know, these shippers in recent 40 hours. And three pallets. And I knew it was that way 54 years ago, but you would think these shippers and receivers would have learned a lesson by now. But that's absolutely ridiculous. But that's not, that's, I almost, we were having such a great conversation, and Debbie said, Hey, you're missing the radio show. I said, It's not <laughs> noon. <laughs> My mind isn't working on this 11 o'clock. So we were, last week, we were talking about. Back to the basics. Yes. And Leroy has part. I'm going to have part. And I didn't get to talk to Pete this morning. Um, but uh, I'm sure people have some to put in. But let's let's say you buy a used truck. Now, if you buy a 2002 and older, that's a little different. But let's say you buy a 2012, 2016, or 18. Things that you might want to think about. And my first thing always is change all the fluids engine transmission rears fire steering fluid front axle the hub oil change all the fluid and start all over and what i used to do with these vehicles was pull the starter and pull the alternator and take them to an alternator shop and have new brushes and bearings put in them um that seems to be gone by the wayside, but if you if you have a good starter alternator shop, that's still not a bad idea. And then if you can get into our shop and get Adam to do the Hawkeye report, then you're part of it. That's a wonderful thing to do because he'll show you things that are wrong with the truck and make a list, and then that's your wish list to go over. 
I mean, one of the other things is pull the air filtration system apart, take the air filter out of the housing, take all the piping off, go into the turbo, take the compressor housing off the turbo, clean it, polish it inside. On the volute part that fits up against the compressor wheel, you want to polish that and make it look like a polished aluminum wheel. That'll give you two to three pounds more boost and give you the boost quicker. Years ago, I've never talked about this, never wrote about it, but they said turbochargers should be cleaned every 30,000 miles. There's only one guy I know that actually does it once a year, and that's Mike Lane out of Hogden, Utah. He takes it off and polishes it. But it's a good practice to do it. And then the white lithium grease, a guy called about, we talked about that uh, show or two ago where a guy had some rust on in his air filter housing. If you have uh, the Vortox stainless air filters, it's not as critical. But if you have steel air filters, you want to wipe them out and spray inside the housing with white lithium grease. Spray all the elbows. Spray the aluminum and plastic piping. You want to have white lithium grease where the rubber el where the rubber elbow goes over the aluminum tube. Uh, this is a good practice to do before winter, before the salt and mag chloride, because when it gets in there, it can expand the clamp and allow dirt to come in. It only takes 30 days of running on highway to wipe out an engine with dust. And that is the silicon that you see in the oil analysis. Hey, hey, Bruce. Uh Yes. I'm going to jump in right there because one of the first calls we have on hold is for an oil sample, and you mentioned silicon. Um, this may be the highest number I have ever seen for silicon on an oil sample. We'll, we'll go over this one because there's a lot of other really odd stuff in this oil sample, but under silicon, 115. Wow. I've never seen a number anywhere never. near that high. And I started oil samples in 1979. I've never seen one even close to that. And the, so, the sodium and potassium are also higher than I've ever seen. What's the iron? Uh, the iron's 50 at 67,000 miles on the oil. So that's not bad at all. The iron's not, not bad. bad. The... The coolant, I think coolant can really raise viscosity. It seems odd because coolant is thinner than oil, but for some reason, when you get a lot of coolant in oil, the viscosity goes up. The viscosity is 19.9. Wow. So I think we're actually okay. going to go to that call first. So uh, we'll, we'll come back to that because I want to hear the story behind this one because it's that's an odd sample. Right. The other thing on buying the used truck set, you have the overhead set. And if you somewhat mechanically inclined, read about it, how to do it, and uh, get with a good mechanic and let him, if he'll let you watch him do it for the first time. And then make it a practice to learn how to set your own valves and injectors. There you go. And do the MD alignment. Always do an alignment. And uh, Adam will see all your bushings in your rear suspension. and things. So that's my part of the, uh, oh, install a turbo boost gauge and an exhaust gas temperature gauge. 
And then I'll let Leroy talk about the electrical side and the emission side of it. Got it. Excellent. All right, Leroy, you're up. Yeah, so just to continue on what Bruce was talking about, if you get a used truck and you want to look over like the electrical part or the after treatment part, some things to look for if you get one is I like to physically take everything off and inspect. Like there on the ISX, there is a piece where the differential pressure for the EGR sits as long as, uh, along with the EGR orifice pressure. That tube right there, right after the EGR valve, gets a lot of soot in it. And when that happens, the sensors don't read right, and it makes the EGR valve stay open more than it's supposed to. So we've had a couple of these recently where this tube and the sensors aren't reading right, and... At like 140 horsepower on the dyno, it'll keep the EGR valve open up 70% versus it's supposed to be at, you know, 35 or 30%. So the EGR valve is open twice as much as it needs to be because it's getting a bad sensor. And then what happens is you get a lot of regens and it regens more than it's supposed to. They don't complete right because of the EGR valve. It's just a mess. So when you get these, you need to tear... Mostly the EGR system is the big issue, not necessarily the DPF and the SCR part. We'll, we'll get to that. So you need to tear all that apart and look at it and clean it. Um, usually just soap and water done works really well on soot. Clean all those pieces up, clean the ports, um, stuff like that. Uh, put new sensors in if they're old. If you don't know how old they are, if it has 800,000 miles on it, put new sensors in if you don't know. Uh, sort of the same thing with the DPF. You can catch a lot of issues. Um, just by just a flashlight looking at it, you know, crawl under it. Do you see where exhaust is leaking out? Uh, you know, you see soot marks on the exhaust pipes, you see broken hoses on the differential pressure. These are all just very like easy things to find that you don't have to be incredibly mechanically inclined to, to see those kind of things. You know, we didn't mention Leroy, we didn't, both of us forgot to mention the diesel force cleaning and follow it up with the max mileage fuel-borne catalyst. Yeah, yeah, the diesel force uh, definitely helps as far as cleaning all that stuff out. Um, but just, yeah, as far as an inspection, it's good to look at it and then get a diesel force. Um, and it, I think it's always better just to check it out before you just clean it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And some people might say, boy, that's a lot of work. Yes, it is a lot of work. But to me, the worst thing you can do is to buy a used truck and say, well, I'm going to work it and make some money, and then I'll start on that. Now, it doesn't work that way. You've right. got to put in the work first and spend the money on it first to make it right. And when you do this, and we've had several people do this, um, bring in a used truck and leave it with us for sometimes a month, and uh, they truck trouble free for the next couple of years because we caught everything. You know, and, Bruce, and you can catch some of this. Stuff. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, my experience with trucks was I could make yeah. a used truck more dependable in the first year than a new truck. I, a new truck always gave me more problems in the first year trying to figure things out. What's going to break? What? needs work done on this with the old truck you do exactly what you just said all that stuff's already broke go figure it out go find it go fix it and then that truck becomes very reliable the new truck you never know what it is that's going to break i had one truck that must have gone through three alternator brackets in the first six months i had another one that went through three wheel seals because we had a bad hub in the first 
three months. It always seemed to be it was that first year I had a new truck that it was harder to keep up with that kind of stuff. And to your point, you're saying you don't know what you never know what you're going to get. A lot of the newer trucks, they the ECM and ACM documents a lot of of what has happened in the past. So if you're at a reputable truck sales place looking to buy this, like, hey, can I get the QCM report? Or can I get the after treatment history report? Uh, if you pull it up and you can see, oh, this thing regens every four hours, you know, this thing is obviously has an issue and don't even buy that truck. Or if you look at the abuse history, if you see it has 15 hours of, you know, coolant temp above 250, you know, the thing's probably blown up. So you can catch a lot of things on the lot before you even buy it. Good point. Yep, exactly. All right. Uh, Leroy, anything else? Uh, yeah, I did want to mention uh, we're making more videos now, um, sort of the back, back to basics course like uh, Bruce was talking about. Uh, so check those out. And if anybody has any suggestions on what they would like to see as far as basics, uh, you know, let us know on the tribe or Facebook or wherever, and, uh, we'll get those videos made. Excellent. All right. Sounds good. Pete, what do you have this week? Hi, Kevin. How are you doing today? Good. Good. What's on your mind? I was going to follow up with what Bruce and Leroy were talking about. So something else would be, you know, once, you know, we do the Hawkeye, make a list of what needs done, make a list of what you want done that might not need to be done, but things like the OPS, um, damper, whatever, make a list, uh, that, that way you won't forget what needs done. And then you can figure out, okay, I have this type of money this week. Let's do this item. Um, I'd also do an oil sample, even though we don't know what oils in there or how many miles are on it. If there's something major going on, like this dirt, it's going to show up. Again, that might be a red flag, like, hey, I got some problems here we need to look into sooner than later. Good point. Good point. I like it. All right. Um, How about an update on uh, how supply issues are affecting you guys? Anything getting any better? I'd say it's staying the same. And it is... Like one week, it might be a, a, a Detroit part, and the next week, a cat part. Um, but really not any worse than what it was. It, it's kind of static at this point. Got it. That's got to uh, work to get the parts. We finally got the pistons in for a Detroit that we had in the shop forever. Couldn't get uh, 207 cylinder kits. Oh, yeah. Well, getting uh, staying the same is better than getting worse right now. So we'll... Uh, We'll go with that. Now they're talking sure. about we'll possible it. diesel fuel shortages and rationing on the East Coast and New England. So could be an interesting summer. One of the guys here posted a uh, picture of a, I think it was a pilot or a TA that had a limit of 70 gallons of diesel fuel. <laughs> 70 <laughs> gallons. Very at, far uh, at although 70 gallons is uh you know, what, 400 bucks now. I mean, that used to be a fill-up. It's not much of a fill-up these days. But, uh, yeah, that's that's going to get, you know, that's going to get rough if we start to see rationing and shortages. But uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Anybody have anything else before we get to the calls? Got a bunch of them today. 
Leroy, didn't you have something about tuning the bubbles? Yeah, so we recently just got some of the access to uh, Volvo software uh, in some of their service manuals. We're not like a full dealer, but we have access to a lot of that stuff. So that's going to help with, uh, you know, diagnosing them in the shop, DPF alternatives, and when we start to do more tuning on them. I have a couple prototypes out there, but we're getting pretty close to saying that we can do Volvo tunes. Excellent. That's exciting. All right. Yeah. Let's uh, let's take some. Oh, hey, Kevin, I have one last thing. Sure. I've heard a lot of the owner-operators with chainsaws telling me they put the max mileage catalyst in it. And it was quite a difference. So last week we were cutting down a couple of trees, and I have this guy that helps me. And he's laughing. I'm putting in two cc's. You know, two gallon thing and mix them with the two stroke oil. And I put in two cc's of the max mileage catalyst. And he said, You really think that's going to make a difference? I said, Yes, it's going to make a difference. Well, he cut, uh, cut down the first tree. He says, Come here. Pull the trigger on that chainsaw and feel that thing accelerate. He said, and it's, a, it's a small steel chainsaw. He said, it, and it's brand new. It was new last October. He said, that thing has never accelerated like that. So Interesting. I got I, to feel firsthand what, what the catalyst does in a chainsaw. Interesting. I found the first thing that it didn't work in. What? I tried it in my electric chainsaw. It didn't help at all. Yeah. <laughs> like that electric lawnmower you have. <laughs> All right, we're going to get to some phone calls. We, uh, we're going to go talk to Jerry about this crazy oil sample that he sent us. Jerry, welcome. Well, actually, the oil sample was kind of a peripheral issue to what I had to, had to talk to uh, Leroy about, but I find, uh, I find you're talking to somebody that's actually notable because Tom from OPS called me after he got this sample, and I have the notoriety of having the highest sodium potassium levels that he has ever in his life seen I, you know those numbers were so big i was trying to remember if i've ever seen anything anywhere near those <laughs> numbers and i don't think i have i don't think i've ever seen a silicon number that high and i don't think i've ever seen viscosity that high i think you set three records well i think there's a couple of lessons in this oil sample that i want to bring up now and the backstory on of it is in an isx and the backstory on it is, is that I was uh, based in Illinois and I was on my way to California and about the last thousand miles on my way to California, I knew I had a serious issue, but I was bound determined that I was going to make my delivery and I unload and reload at the same place. So my goal was just to get there, get unloaded and reloaded and then take one day at a time. Going down the road, it was running fine, so I started back, and uh, believe it or not, I actually made it all the way back to Illinois, and with a, with a, I knew I had either a cracked head or a blown head gasket, but I knew when we tore it down that whatever we did with a million and 70,000 miles on that engine, that it was going to get an in-frame anyway. I mean, there was no point in taking it down, so I decided that I'll take it one day at a time, and if I make it back, I make it back. Every day, I can get closer and is that much less of a tow bill to get it towed to the shop to work on it. So, we'll, uh, small miracles, I actually made it. I made it to the shop, and uh, that's that. I just first 
fun of it, I decided to take an oil sample uh, with that result, and those are the results of that oil sample after that trip. So I think the the two things I want to, I guess, the oil sample point out is number one, the oil sample, while it's extremely valuable, is not a hundred percent predictive of, of any catastrophic failure. In this case, it was in fact the head gasket that had uh, given way, and so the oil sample is so valuable. However, if you can look on the previous oil sample, and it gave no indication whatsoever that that was going to happen. The other thing that that I think is very interesting is on that oil sample is it's got a million and seventy thousand miles on it, and it was not overhauled because of any wear metals or uh, oil consumption, excessive oil consumption. It was getting down to where it was using about a gallon in eight to 10,000 miles. So eventually it was going to have to be overhauled. But what I find amusing is this. I do have an OPS on it, of course, by the way. Uh, I'm in a couple of Cummins groups on Facebook. Anytime anybody posts a picture of a problem with a Cummins ISX, there's a certain core group that absolutely positively blames it on you're letting your oil drain interval go too long. That's, oh that's absolutely the cause of that problem. Now, on my particular engine and the oil I'm using, it seems like 100,000 miles is just a kind of that sweet spot on the oil change. So my point is this. Following the advice of those Cummins gurus of changing, you have to change in order to get a Cummins engine to last. You have to change the oil every twelve to fifteen thousand miles. In a one million and seventy thousand miles, I was coming up on my eleventh oil change. If I had changed the oil based on their advice every fifteen thousand miles, I would have done seventy-one oil changes wow. in a million and seventy thousand miles now think of the cost savings that that indicates uh, they just and i i post in there once in a while in a couple of groups and point out that they're the fallacy of their uh, uh frequent ch- uh, oil change argument but they don't believe it so uh you know why bother so well yeah exactly so a couple things in here that are interesting to me um one did you put some sort of different makeup oil in, or did you switch oil brands on this last go-round? No, it's the same oil, consistent all the way through those samples. Something doesn't make sense to me, then, at all. Um, okay. Oh, maybe they explained it here. I've never seen this before, though. Um, if you look under molly, mal- molybdenum. Right, right. It was, you had none. And a lot of oils really don't have any molly in them. It, it, it's an additive. Some oils use it, some don't. It's a friction modifier. You went from one, 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 two, one, which means they, they really don't put any molly in this oil. And all of a sudden it jumped to 314. So right. now I, I would assume that you put in an oil that had molly in it. So now we're seeing it. But I was just reading through their notes Right. And my it this note actually answers both of my questions. I was also going to ask where the hell did all the silicon come from? Cuz that's dirt and that would have nothing to do with the coolant leak itself. But I just this is such an odd sample. Here's the note and I've never seen this before. It says silicon molybdenum 
boron, and or phosphorus increases may be due to the coolant contamination. I've never seen that, but I've never seen this much coolant get into the oil. I had no idea well, that it, it could was raise. Bust, wasn't it? So. Yeah, I had no idea it could <laughs> but raise. Go ahead and read the next line, though. I mean, with that kind of an oil sample, it says resample at half interval. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, really. you're right. That's, that's kind of comical. <laughs> Um, well, I thought so anyway. I just, why the hell would you? And, I, and it, say, it also says your note was taken into consideration, and I think I put on the uh, uh, the, the uh, slip you send in with the oil sample that it was just a sample directly before an in frame, so I think that's probably what they uh, are referring to when it says uh, note taken into consideration. I have another question for you. Did you, right. did you happen to see this oil when it was being drained? Uh, no, I did not. No, okay. but I, I was watching the level and what's so strange. It, it wasn't increasing in level. any. That was going to be my next question. There's so no. much coolant in here. It should have gone no. up on the stick. And here's what I was wondering is, was there any visual indicator? Because I've heard people say, oh, I don't need to sample. I know when I have fuel in my oil. I know when I have coolant. In it. No, you don't. Yeah, you smell it and rub it on your forehead. <laughs> exactly. Even with this amount, I don't think anybody would have known. Um, those are crazy numbers. Well, I don't believe I saw the oil. They, they had it pulled in the shop and had it drained. Uh, I just left it at the shop on a Wednesday uh, afternoon, and then Thursday morning they got it in and... Uh, Believe it or not, it actually started and ran in the shop. I was afraid it was going to hide her lock, you know, sitting there overnight uh, from Wednesday night to Thursday morning. But they, it actually ran and uh, got it in the shop. So I, I did not see the oil, but I, I was watching it on the dipstick, and it wasn't way, way up or anything. It wasn't, right. no, it didn't have any indication on the dipstick that it was exactly. actually full yep. of coolant. So it was, I just thought that was kind of an amazing uh, oil sample, and I just feel so honored to have the notoriety of having the highest, highest sodium but well, for me, like I said, so, I, I think you broke the trifecta. There are three readings on there. I've never I seen that high. So the main reason for the call is that we did do an in-frame, and I've got an electrical question for uh, Leroy. Uh, if he's on here, are you still on there, Leroy? I'm still here. On a 2007 Kenworth, it has an oil an engine oil temperature gauge. It is, but it's got a light on the dash. Also a check engine light is coming on and both by insight and, and reading it on the dash, it indicates with the check engine light on it indicates engine oil temperature high. The gauge is reading perfect. When you start out of the morning and on a cold morning, the light will not be on, but when it gets up to about maybe 180 or 90 on the temperature gauge, then the light will come on and stay on. My question is kind of a wiring issue then is how can the gauge read accurately, but the check engine light is on and you go back to the last thing you did, and that was we would have had some wires unhooked to do the in-frame. Where do I start looking for causing the engine oil temperature light to be on, but the gauge shows a perfect reading? Well, is the gauge a data link gauge, or is it a manual gauge? Does it get the reading from the ECM? Did you... Alan, there's I know. You're the guru. Uh, you tell me. 
It's on an ISX. You said you had uh, Insight, right? Well, the shop has Insight, and, and the only reason they did that, they, they went in the Insight. I had a, I had a, uh, see, there's a little discussion on whether it's a multi-sensor. There's one sensor there that's got three wires on it, and we were thinking that that was the, the problem because the connector on that was broke, but it then broke for hell, half a million miles, but it's still been reading oil pressure just fine, so I fixed that connector on that sensor and actually replaced the sensor thinking that would call the problem. And we went in and turned the light off with insight. So we didn't really look at anything else under, you know, not turn it off. I mean, wipe out the codes, deleted the codes that was making that light come on, but that didn't solve the problem. Now I'm finding I do have another temperature sensor on the engine, but why is the, Gauge reading fine and the light off. So what I would what I would start with is if it has the log code for high oil temp, I would look back at the freeze frame data that the fault code throws, and it'll tell you what the oil temp was when it threw the fault code. That's what I would start with, and then I would look at the data monitor in Insights. That would tell you what the current reading is, and then I would verify what the ECM is seeing for oil temp versus versus, versus what your gauge is seeing. Okay. Then I would see if the gauge that you have is a data link gauge, meaning it gets its reading from the ECM, or does it get its reading from a physical sensor? Uh, like some of the older ones, you could put like an aftermarket oil temp sensor in. I would see which gauge you have. If it is from the data link, if it is a data link gauge, meaning it gets its reading from the ECM, if the insight shows it's reading 150 on oil temp and the gauge is reading 180, and it's supposed to be getting its ga- its reading from the ECM, then the gauge is just broken. Um, so, yeah, it's a three-step thing. I would see what the ECM okay. it is. I would check to see which gauge you have. Usually, if you pop the, the gauge out, you, you pull back the instrument buster, you can see how many wires it has. Um, and then if you can kind of see if the wires in the back of the gauge are kind of daisy-chained to the other ones. Um, that's what I would start with if it, if it were here. Well, on a 2007 truck, would you suggest which one it is with knowing it? Or you don't, you don't have a suggestion of which one the gauge is on a 2007 truck? I'm feeling that it's a data link gauge being it's a Kenworth. Um, but you'll never know. And like Pete said, you could check for a sensor in the oil pan. If there's a sensor there, then you know it's... There is not a sensor in the oil pan. I do know that. Okay. And typically temperature sensors are usually two wires. Pressure sensors are three wires, so okay, okay, that's what you kind of check for. But I would go one step further, get a digital heat gun, and shoot the oil pan, see where it's at. Yeah, I may have one with me, and I just haven't uh, haven't dug it out and done that yet. I need to, um, but the gauge the gauge is reading perfect for it always had before before the overhaul, and the only thing that's different is the light. So, yeah, I got you, though. Maybe the gauge is wrong then, too. If the gauge is wrong and you're not running hot, this is less of a problem to be concerned with. It needs fixed, but not at this moment. But if it is indeed running hot, you're going to want to get this looked at sooner than later. And they can yeah, all but when it's can't. supposed to kick the light on. So, it's, it's just some, some, I don't know, and maybe you're right, I just couldn't figure out how the value that would trigger the light 
on which is different than the value of the gauge. If they're all coming through the ECM, how can they be different? So I'm almost thinking they must be separate. Yeah, it's either separate or the gauge is broken. Oh, hell, don't say that. All right. <laughs> I, think, I think that gauge is part of a cluster, and I'm not sure you can replace just the gauge, can you? Uh, I'm not sure which one you're looking at. There's a multitude of Kenworth Dash. All right. All right. Well, I'll just have to do a little more research on that then. Well, I answered that. Don't pull me some things I need to look for, and I'll dig out my gun and, or temp gun and spend some time. I don't if you still need extra help, you can just shoot me an email and we can talk through it or you can give me a call. All right. Well, that pretty well answered it. So I'm glad I got to amuse everybody on my oil sample. And I, I just uh, am quite gratified to having the notoriety of uh, having the highest samples anybody's ever seen. So there you go. I'm going to in a record book. I think I'm going to frame that one and put it on my wall. All right, Kevin. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, fellas. I appreciate it. Thank All you. Right. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Baltimore this time. Ruben, welcome to the program. Hello, Kevin. Yes. How's Lisa doing? Good. What's on your mind today? Well, I've got a question. Uh, i got a friend of mine who's got a shop, and uh, he's got a truck and a driver, and uh, he wants to run under my authority. Uh, uh, he helps me a lot. So anyway, I want to try to uh, merge the two business together. How do I structure this legally to keep me safe? Well, wait a minute. When you talk about merging the two businesses together, I'm assuming he currently owns his business, right? Yes. And you own yours? Yes. And have you two talked about a value yet? No, we have not. Okay, so the first thing I would be looking at is what is each business worth, or are you just you two just going to throw it all in and say we're splitting this 50-50? Okay. No, I'm asking. Maybe, that was a question. Okay. Are you, there, there's a couple ways you could look at this. You could actually put a value on each business, and then that value, let's say that one business is worth 20% more, than the other business. Well, then whoever put that business into the deal should own a bigger percentage of the the new company. Or are you both just going to be willing to say, we don't care what they're worth, we're putting them both in and we're just going to be 50-50 owners? Yeah, that's probably what we're going to do, just do the 50-50. Okay. Now, my next question. Why are we combining them? What's the advantage we're going to create? Uh, he works on my equipment a lot and, and, uh, he needs, uh, he lost his contract and he's wanting to run under my authority. I, I get that. that All sense? of that could be done without combining two businesses. You could, he could still okay, work on that? your truck and he could, you could bring his truck under your authority that that doesn't mean the two businesses have to be combined. So back to the, the question again, if we combine the two businesses, why are we combining them? What advantage will we create? Don't know. Then I wouldn't do it there. I I can give you all the downsides. I can give you all kinds of risks of doing this. So when I have a big decision to make, 
I like that simple method of take a piece of paper, put a line down the middle. On the left side, we're going to list all the positives, all the reasons we should do this. And on the right side, we're going to list all the reasons we shouldn't do this. I could fill up the right side with all the reasons we shouldn't do this. Partnerships are the most um, risky business venture there is. And I have personal experience. I have had several partnerships that have failed uh, one of them failed pretty spectacularly. Uh, I'm in a partnership now. It's the first one that's really worked after 35 years. So we could go through the, the risk of this. You realize when you're in business with somebody, you're responsible for everything they do. They yeah. could go out and borrow money uh, with this business borrow money against this business, borrow money against the assets, and you may not even know they do it, but you're still responsible for it. Yeah, you can't do that. No, I wouldn't let him do that. Well, how do you stop him? What if he just goes to the bank one day with a bunch of paperwork, says, hey, this is my business. I want to borrow this much money. I'm going to put this up as collateral. Once you two own that business, nothing would stop him from doing that. Oh, never thought about that. That's just one. So I could, I could go on and on with all the things I'm going to put in the right side of this. Um, certainly, the business becomes much more complicated. We run into the issues of, you know, how do we pay you to? Have you talked about how you would get paid? Mm-hmm. How? I well, mean, how do you determine uh, I'm who a, makes... I'm assuming, I, I'm, I'm assuming I need to do a 1099 and a W-2 on this driver. No, I'm not talking about the paperwork. I'm just talking about okay. how much, if I work in this, if we, now we put this business together. When I own the whole business, all of the profit is mine. I know how much I'm making. I, my money comes in. I have expenses. Whatever is left over is mine. It's all mine. Well, now all of a sudden we have two people. In. How do we determine who gets paid what this week? I see. Okay. So now there's three or four things on the right side. It's starting to look a little lopsided here. Let's go back. What advantage will we create by combining these two businesses? What positive thing can we put in the left column? Don't know yet. I don't think there is any. Okay. I can't think of a single reason to do this. I can think of all kinds of reasons not Hmm. to do it. Okay. Um, what about legally, uh, uh, tax-wise? Should, should I form an LLC and maybe keep me safe from liability? Are we talking about you keeping your business separate now? Yeah. Well, then you don't need to do anything. I mean, small businesses, we don't form LLCs or corporations to protect anything because it doesn't work you would still be completely liable for everything in a small business. When you're the owner, you make all the decisions. There's really no way to get around that liability. Now, the good news is nobody's coming after you because you don't have enough worth coming after. I'm I'm pretty sure you don't have a million dollars of clear assets, right? No, no, I don't. Nobody, attorneys, attorneys don't even want to turn on the lights unless they're suing somebody for at least a million dollars. It, it, 
people worry about this small business liability. Well, what do you have that anybody could come after and get? So what are we trying to protect? Not much. No, there's nothing to protect. I mean, and that that's almost no, every small business. You know, it, it, as a small no. business owner, one, we need to make sure we have good insurance in place for things like that. But two, we can also structure our money and our resources so that it doesn't make sense to come after us. If most of my money is either tied up in um, a personal residence, which they can't take, or a qualified retirement plan, which they can't take, and I have less than a million dollars worth of assets, I really don't have to worry about lawsuits. Okay. Well, what should I be thinking of if we decide to do this? Uh, I, I Hold on. Wait, did, did you not just hear the last 20 minutes of the conversation? What you should be looking for yes, are positives you could put on that left side, and you can't come up with a single one. Right. And if you can't come up with a good reason why you would do this, then my question to you would be, why would you do this? Okay. So when you say, if we that. decide to do this, well, <laughs> I, I don't want to answer that question because why worry about something that we haven't figured out why we should do it yet? Hmm. How much if revenue he, does he works on your equipment? He works in your equipment and he wants to run under your authority. Why don't you just do that? Why do you want yeah. to go through the expense and the problems of trying to combine this? And it's two different businesses. It's two different companies. Yeah, to me, it looks like you're looking for a nightmare. So okay. let me ask you a question. What's the, what's the gross revenue of that shop a year? Uh, don't know what it is. Don't know. I've never asked him that. So again, I would come back to my favorite question: Why? Why do you want to be involved in a business where you don't even know the numbers? Yeah, I would. I I'm would stay very far away from this. I don't see any reason whatsoever to do that. Now, sure, he can still work on your truck, and he can lease his truck under your authority. There, there's no reason not to do those two things. But to combine the business okay. makes no sense to me at all. So if I did the second way, like you just talked about, uh, lease, his, lease his truck under my authority. Right. So uh, what, what if we did that? Yeah, you can do that. Then, There's nothing uh, wrong with that. Then you figure out you know, okay. a, a percentage split. You know, you take 15% of the freight you know, for having the authority and the insurance and handling all the logistics and he gets 85% of the revenue or, or whatever you two come to an agreement on. So just keep them separate and lease, on, lease his truck under my authority. Correct. Okay. Hmm. All right. What about insurance wise? Well, you have to, you have your own authority, so you must have insurance now. You just go to your insurance carrier and say, I'm adding a truck, and they will give you qualifications. Like, they're not going to let you lease a truck on um, where the, the owner or the driver has had a DUI or six speeding tickets or, or whatever. There's going to be some insurance requirements there, but you don't need any 
new insurance, you just go back to your insurance carrier now and say, I'm adding trucks under my authority. I'm leasing trucks on under my authority and they'll tell you what you need to do. Hey, I'm, I, I'm going to have to leave soon and I got a couple things to talk about. So, Okay. Um, Hello, Bruce. So, Ruben, does that help? Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yep. Give that some thought. If you have any questions after you think about it, call me back. Go ahead, Bruce. Floor's all yours. Okay. Uh, Al Hammerson is going into a new truck. The, um, let me give you the specs on the one. He's been driving this truck for 289,000 miles. It's owned by CNA Transportation out of Acony, Iowa. Uh, Dave Kalman is the owner of Concord, and he has just sold his company. He also, Dave has a beautiful 2001 379 with a cat in for sale. But this truck that Al's driving is a 579. It's had the Max Mileage Catalyst in it since day one. This is the one we've been talking about. It's had zero check engine lights and only 20-some minutes of regens. It's never had a full-part regen. Um, it's a 500 ISX, 1850 torque, 18-speed, 308 rear-end carrier, APU, 579 ultra-loft. Non-smoking truck, oil changed every 10,000 miles. Charcoal, black metallic with gray interior, refrigerator, APU, heater, air conditioner. No idea as to the price. But this has been a trouble-free Peterbilt. So if anyone's interested in that or the 2001-379, contact Dave at Concord in Acme, and I can tell you that Peterbilt, blue and white 2001 Pete, is high mileage, but this guy is a, I think he's a money's no object guy, so the truck is perfect. The 6NZ, 2.7 million miles on it. So there's two good used trucks. Got it. All right. What else you got? That's it. Okay. Are you leaving us? Uh, in a few minutes, I have to, but I'm going to be here for a little bit yet. Okay. We'll grab another call. Are, are we going to make it till 1230? Uh, we've got uh, three calls, and we'll stay until they keep coming in. Okay. All right. Let's go to yeah. Minnesota this time. Scott, welcome to the program. Hi, guys. I've got an oil sample. Um, that I've got a couple questions, about, but it's on a little truck. It's on a 6.7 Cummins and a one-ton Ram. All right. Let me try to figure this out. So it's a little engine, and it's a different lab. Uh, let's see. Kevin, they're saying the aluminum and tin jumped on this one. I do oil samples every 30,000 miles. I'm kind of wondering about the aluminum because I don't necessarily think that that would be engine bearings like they're saying. I don't think. See, that's where I, I 
just don't know enough about these little engines. I don't believe there would be aluminum in the bearing. We would have aluminum in the top end. So we do watch aluminum wear. So aluminum did jump pretty high and tin as well. Those are, um, those are typically upper cylinder. I don't know why they're pointing out bearings. Uh, anybody else know anything about these engines? There wouldn't be any aluminum in, in any part of the bearing, would there? Yeah, the KTA had aluminum main bearings, but I don't think the 6.7 does, but we've never had one apart. Um, Pete, you know if these have little, steel pistons or aluminum pistons? I don't know. I, I don't know if there's, there's steel pistons or not. There's not a lot of aluminum in an engine today. Thrust washers can be aluminum. One other thing, guys, is um, hey. when it went from, so the aluminum was 4337. When it went up to 7, I had just replaced the turbo at just under half a million miles. So could it be something with the new turbo? Well, here's the interesting thing. So if I look at at um, lead and copper, which is normally what we look for for a bearing. The outer surface is lead. When you wear through the lead, you get to the copper. I mean, this is just a, a common thing. But again, not knowing this engine and what they make these bearings out of, I, I, um, I don't know if the lab is completely wrong because when you see zero lead, which is what you have, zero lead and one copper, to me, that would indicate no bearing wear whatsoever. But in their notes, they say, then maybe the excess bearing wear is a temporary result. I, but I don't see where they're, why they would think this is bearing wear. I don't see any lead at all. And one part of copper is nothing. I've seen hundreds. So I don't know why they're thinking On their this is on their note 30,000 miles ago, when it got to seven, they said they were thinking possibly pistons. So they went from pistons to bearings. So I don't necessarily uh, believe their comment too well. They're probably not mechanics. They're lab guys or engineers, which nothing wrong with engineers. Some of them are really good. I'm sure Leroy is great, but some of them are, are school guys. Well, and, and, yeah. and you're right. When, when they were, when it jumped up to seven and they were giving you, you know, piston, I would think it's much more likely that there's aluminum pistons than aluminum in the bearings. So when it first jumped up and they were looking at piston, that seemed correct to me. Now that there's this high aluminum, but there's no lead and virtually no copper, I just don't know why they're, they're talking about bearings. When I replace the turbo, the turbo has a little bit of aluminum. Of course, the wheel's aluminum, a little bit of stuff. But also then I think the intercooler would be aluminum. Is it something where it could be blowing it in through the new turbo somehow? And um, maybe that would be the aluminum showing up in the oil. Or is that not going to get into the oil? No, it oh, wait, could. You said that you read. What about the turbo? Now, the turbo... The bearings in there are a sleeve, and sometimes they're aluminum, sometimes they're brass. And these are supposedly a brass sleeve, and it's a cast iron body, of course. So there's not much aluminum in 
the turbo. I talked to the turbo guys two days ago about the same thing, and they're not thinking it's anything. Um, I checked for play side to side and end to end, and the wheel looks fine. There's nothing on a visual inspection or feeling it through the air intake. So why'd you replace the turbo? I, um, the actuator went out at just under half a million miles, which is pretty common on these common little trucks. Okay. Yeah, I I don't know on this one that their explanation doesn't make sense. If if this were my truck, how often are you sampling? I sample every thirty thousand, change the oil every fifteen. So I'm thinking I will. I've already got eight or ten on this oil that I replaced, of course, and so I'm going to sample at ten or twelve just to be safe. And if it's gone up, then I got a problem. If it's gone or way down then I know it might be something leaching from the intercooler or piping or turbo. Yeah, it, it also, you know, the aluminum is a concern. We should keep an eye on it, but um, I, I, I wouldn't be thinking bearings. Have you noticed any drop in oil pressure? No drop in oil pressure. Can't hear anything as far as clattering or anything that would yeah, make I, me start thinking the bearings are really bad. I, I'd just keep an eye on uh, this. I mean, seven's not high, so seven parts. Now it's 20, 23, Bruce. 23. It went from 4437 oh. and then 23. Oh, 23. Okay. I'll resample and I'll look into the interior engine part, see, okay, are the pistons aluminum? Uh, what's aluminum in the top end? And then um, I'll probably report back to you guys after I sample in another week or two, and then we'll, we'll see where it goes. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at a picture of a 6.7 right now. This thing was built to. Apparently do sled pulling. It's 1,400 horsepower, and the head's not on it. The pistons do look like they're aluminum. Okay. The, the bearings are steel-backed bearings with an intermediate layer of copper-lead alloy. So yeah. they do not have any aluminum. So that's a traditional bearing. You're not, you have no bearing wear on this truck. It's not bearings. Right, and we're looking at 130,000 just in these four or five oil samples. So, I mean, it's not like it was a long time ago, and we're just not seeing the copper and lead. Yeah, no, the, the, right. your bearings are rock solid. I don't know why they mentioned that in this lab report. That's this, is, this isn't the lab we normally use, but that just seems odd to me. Okay, well, I'm going to do some looking at it, and I'll do another sample, and I hope it all goes down. And if it doesn't, then I think I'll probably start looking at it's kind of what's coming into the engine in the in the tubing and the intercooler and the turbo because it really I, I doubt that it's piston. Yeah, being we don't we haven't had one of these engines apart. Why don't you look and see who's doing the truck pulling with these and give that company a call and see what else is aluminum? Are there aluminum thrust washers on the crankshaft like there is on a big cam? I can't answer that. And so we're not really qualified to answer a lot of the questions on the 6.7. I own one, but it only has 18,000 miles on it. Sure. All right. Well, thank you, guys. I'll report back. All right. Thanks okay. for the call. Hey, Bruce, I think we have a buyer for yes. that truck on the line. You want to talk to him? Sure. All right. Uh, Charlie says he's in Pennsylvania. Hey, Charlie. Yes, go ahead. I'm here. All right, go ahead. Okay, sorry, bump the mute. Bruce, it's Charlie Ebling. How are you? Charlie, you're the guy that uh, 
I was looking for this truck because they sent me this and used your name, but I'm not at my office, so I couldn't call you. But uh, here's the oh, phone I number call, to call. Called, oh, no, no, no. I called and talked to Dave yesterday. Take that off the air. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did you buy it? Not yet. He, he won't tell me. He went, He's going to wait two weeks. But then the 16 glider with the 6 NZ will be for sale, so. Which, okay. I'm, I'm getting like, I'm getting like six and a half with it, which isn't too bad for not really doing anything to it yet. Yeah. Okay. So are you going to buy I this 579? I'm going to try. That's why I called Dave yesterday. In fact, Kim just called me yesterday again and said, uh, we're picking our, we're doing this, we're doing that. Called Dave, and then ten minutes later, they're, they're doing one last round to California and back, and then yes, and yes, uh, yes. Okay. So, so take that off the air, Kevin. I think. Okay, okay. It's, yeah. it's gone. It's all yours. Uh, well, I hope so. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, he he doesn't know yet. He basically, Dave said he doesn't know yet. He's waiting until something settles down. So. Got so it. I just okay. wanted to give Bruce Heckford saying that, you know, because I'm, I'm on top of this, Bruce. <laughs> All right. Okay. Good. So Good. as far as I'm concerned, it's yours. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. There you All go. All right. All right. That's all I got, but this thing's running great. All right, guys. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Nebraska. Paul, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I've just been recently getting onto my fuel mileage a lot. I've been using your fuel gauges for the past five months now and just getting my average up. And uh, with my truck, the other day I heard you guys, uh, a couple guys called in about 10 speeds and how you guys don't like them because there's just a, such a high drop from 10 to 9. Uh, my truck is a 15 Cascadia with 253 rears and a straight 10 speed. I was just wondering where in the RPM range is the sweet spot, so-called sweet spot, I guess. What is your boost gauge in your exhaust? You don't probably don't have exhaust gas temp. Do you have a turbo boost gauge? I have the one that's built into the Cascadia, the digital one in the dash, and I've just been listening to you guys. I've been trying to keep it under 10 for the past couple weeks. And what RPM is that? I am touching right now at 10 PSI on the level, I am touching 1500 RPM. What speed are you going? 68 right now, and I'm at 10 pounds of boost. So I think you're above, Leroy, on this. This is a Detroit, right? Yes, sir. I was I was believing that the spot was about 1350 RPM. So take it down to 1350 now from 1500. Let it level out and tell us what the boost goes to. I think you're, it's 1500. You're on the wrong side of the torque curve for that ECM. It is leveled out to 3 PSI at 1350, and the cruise speed is 62. Wow, that was a big change. Yeah, there you are. That's your speed right so there. It is about the 1350 then, what I was thinking. Yep. Yeah. 
Okay, and uh, my next question on the when you asked me about the exhaust temperature on these Detroit, can I buy one of yours and throw it on there? Like, is there a spot for it or? Uh, there's no spot for it. Uh, Pete, didn't you say was pretty hard to do on the uh, DD-13s and DD-15s? Yeah, you have to pull the turbo off to do it to get access and also to keep the chips from falling. Um, anytime we have a VG turbo on a truck, we like to uh, take the turbo off. So you want to do that when it's time for the turbo or manifold to come off for whatever reason. That'd be the time to do it. it it's just hard access to get to the manifold. Um, drill and tap it. Okay, and uh, that was my question. Because I'm power only. I never have the same thing. One week I'll have loaded reefers. The next will be a stack of flatbed. So as long as I know that that 1350 is my sweet 110 PSI, I should be right. right. Not necessarily the 1350. You know, it's the the weather, it's the topography, it's where you are, but where you can cruise along effortless and keep the boost low. Uh, Some days it may be 14, uh, but I think 1400 is probably where that ECM starts to cut back. Well, yeah, like you said, it really depends. But with the 10 speed, it's kind of hard. Because, like, I've tested right. this recently on a dyno with a guy, and because he was asking the same question, and it, if you can run tenth and you know not have to lug the engine, it's it's okay, but it's also not great when you have to downshift either because then the RPMs go to like on his truck went to like eighteen hundred, so it's it's like I said, the tenth speed is not great for that because there's just such a big split. It's hard to find the sweet spot. You're better off just to you know drive light and drive slow. Okay. Well, that's all I really had questions. Next thing in my list is just checking for a boost leak and getting your tune done at a remote tuner. Hey, I'm surprised you went from from 68 to 62 and went from 10 pound of boost to three. That's quite a drop. That's a big drop. Man. The fact that you can run 62 at three pounds of boost is pretty incredible. And I'm running low pro 225s on this truck. Yeah. I think you got a perfect 62 mile an hour truck. Oh, uh, well, I love the weeks when I get nothing but delivering brand new green trailers empty. I can get up to about 10 miles a gallon on those weeks. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, thank you for your time, guys. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Oh, Kevin, the turbo boost gauge doesn't lie. There you go. That's uh. It lets you know how much you're pushing on the pedal. uh, Those are good numbers. Let's go to Florida this time. Brad, welcome to the program. Hello. I have a coolant plumbing question for a 2350 ISX. It has a Davco with a coolant heater, and I'm wondering if I can turn or install ball valves and turn the coolant heat off in the summer so it's not heating the fuel all the time. Sure, I would think you can. Yeah. Okay, Aren't does it matter where the ball is? You might not need What's to. That? Some of the water separators had a thermostat in them so that the coolant wouldn't go through them when it's warm out. Okay, I could look into that a little more. Would I still have yeah, flow going I'd have it? to but there'd be no problems putting shutoff valves. Okay, Why don't you just, I just work out? 
touch the hoses, you know, and see if the coolant is passing through there. You don't want to heat that fuel in the summertime. Anytime you take diesel fuel over 170 degrees, it loses its power. Okay, and it doesn't matter where the ball valves have been installed, either by the DAPCO or on the passenger side of the motor? I, don't I think from on the engine, and the reason for that would be if the hose starts leaking, you can shut them off at the engine. Okay. Yeah, if you put them on at the water separator, it'll keep coolant from going in there, but if you have a, a, a leak in the hose, then it didn't do you any good. Okay. I'll check to see if it has a thermostat in it, and thanks for answering my question. All right. Thanks for the call. Uh, that's going to do it for the calls. Anybody have anything they want to wrap up with? Leroy, you were mentioning to me earlier today, you made a video on how to use the um, voltmeter. Yeah. Multimeter. Yeah, we have a uh, part one and part two on YouTube. Um, there probably will be a little bit of a part three. It's sort of a, a basic series. Yeah, shows you how to measure battery voltage, uh, how to check for current draw, check relays, uh, check sensors, uh, resistance, cab grounds, uh, stuff like that. I need to go watch that. I'll bet I could learn a few things. Yeah, they're a little bit long because I like to ramble, but um, they're uh, they're pretty good. So this is kind of our start for a back to basic series. We'll get into some other stuff that's not electrical, but that's just kind of a, where we started. Excellent. All right. I have something. Go ahead. A 68-year-old logger down in the four corners of Colorado has uh, one of our competitors' tunes on an ISX, and they took a piston out uh, they, 36,000 miles ago. They um, put a reman long block in from a non-genuine Cummins dealer, so it would not have been genuine Cummins parts. He didn't do anything with the ECM, and I happen to know these people like to advance timing. He called me yesterday, broke the crankshaft. I said, is it a new damper on the front of the crank? I don't know. Well, then you know it's not. that's, That's right, and I said, Why? You've heard me talk about advanced timing, and advanced timing breaks heads, breaks pistons. And now here you are, 36,000 miles later, you're 68 years old, and you're now going into your retirement savings to keep running because that timing is advanced. So, so Bruce, is this... Be when people advance timing. Is, is this just recent? Yesterday. Yeah, so here's the other thing that's scary about the story. Not only is he should he be thinking about retirement if he wanted to, but he shouldn't be touching retirement savings after the last couple of years we've had. If he wasn't able to put some money aside for emergencies like this over the last couple of years, he's not going to make it through what's coming. Yeah. That's, uh, that's sad. And that's a big hit. That's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. That's going to hurt. So he's going to be sending Leroy the ECM so we can see what's going on in there. Got it. All right. 
We are going to wrap this up. We will be back at 9.30 today for The Pit. I am going to take uh, a bit of a break here. 9.30? 9.30. For, well, 9.30 my time for The Pit. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to take a 15-minute break here, and then we'll come back, and we will do The Pit today. All right. We will uh, we'll also see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health. We've got a lot going on tomorrow. We'll see you then. Be safe. Okay. Oop, go ahead, Bruce. I just uh, flew back from Austin, Texas. My daughter lives there last night and uh, spoke with a lot of builders or custom home builders and other things. And people were complaining about the shortages. And, you know, it's a very liberal city down there. And I said, well, you know who to blame for this? I said, when Donald Trump was president, you didn't have any problems. And boy, they just give you these cold stares when you give them the facts like that. Uh, you know, I, the truth. I've just been waiting for the last year and a half. I have asked somebody, anybody that can explain what the Democrat Party is doing. Just, just give me anything. What's their plan? What's their strategy? Everything we're looking at has become a crisis. And nothing seems to be getting done about it. And, and these shortages yeah. are insane, and they only seem to be getting worse instead of better. You know, we were talking about shortages back before Christmas, and we talked about all the containers sitting out in the ocean. What happened to them all? Have we moved those through yet? Do we still have backlogs out there? And why are we begging other countries to send us stuff? That's awful. And there's a lot of Republicans involved in that, too. And they're all part of that deep state. So... Yeah, well, we'll uh, we'll talk more about that in Reap a little bit. Reap what you bit. sow, right? What, what's that? Isn't it reap what you sow? Yeah, exactly. You reap what you sow. Well, that's or kind of... Um, you reap what you sow. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give a little preview on the, on the uh, pit today. I have more questions than answers. You know, I, I'm just wondering what, what the big picture is for the Democrats. They've had control of the House, the Senate, and the President for a year and a half. Everything has gotten worse. And there's nothing in place that's going to fix any of the stuff that's happening right now. And I'm, I'm just wondering, sure. what is the big picture? What, what do they, I mean, it seems pretty obvious from the couple elections that we've had and some of the um, runoffs and that kind of thing that the, it just looks like the Democrats are just going to get hammered this time. And, and I wonder, what, what are they thinking? What is their plan for after the midterms? I mean, if they lose the House and the Senate, which it looks like they're going to, and they're going to lose a bunch of states, I don't. I just don't get it. Well, all those Democrats that were on Adam Schiff, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, that were just constantly complaining about Trump, you don't even see their face on television anymore. Well, they have nothing to say. They're, they're, you know, if you ask them a question, what are you doing about the border? Everything possible. Name one thing. They have nothing. What are you doing about inflation? Everything under our powers. That's always their answer. Well, just name one. Stop saying everything. Just name one because I can't think of one thing they're doing. 
Yeah. All you got to do is read about how Hitler took over Germany and you know, see that's what they're trying to do here. So That's uh, a scary thought. All right, we're going to wrap this up. And we will be back here in uh, just a little under 15 minutes. We'll see you then. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.